Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What these young bloods have to understand, that this game has always been and will always be about buckets. Just attack the basket. Buckets, brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook. My name's Matt Moore. I'm the senior NBA writer for the Action Network. And today's show is a rarity in that we're not going to be, no best bets today, though you will learn stuff that you can use on the betting side as always on this show. Last week, I published the Elite 100, a project I've been doing off and on since around 2012, uh, listed the top 100 players in the NBA based off of my definition of how much they impact winning. That's kind of the core of it. And there's a lot of factors that go into it. Availability is a big one. So if you miss a lot of time, you're going to take a little bit of a tumble. Playoff viability, big one. Need to be a 16-game player or at least have the possibility of becoming one. Uh, And some of this gets into a lot of the details. And a good friend of mine, one of my guys uh, that I've known for a long time, who's very smart, is smarter than me, has very graciously agreed to come on because he's done his own project that's similar, but in many ways a lot smarter and, if nothing else, safer than mine, which is the Athletics NBA Tears program. And that's Seth Part now. You know him from The Athletic. He is absolutely prolific. You know him as the author of The Midrange Theory. You can find that in bookstores still. Seth, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, I, it's funny that you say that it is a, a less risky project, a safer project um, to, to do it in tiers as opposed to actual rankings. Because I, uh, I don't think I've dodged any of the vitriol that one might get uh, from doing rankings by, doing, by flattening it out and doing tiers. But whatever. I think one of the things, the only reason, not to go down this road too much, but one of the reasons I would say it is it's a lot better to put on a graphic of Seth Parnell has this player in tier four rather than me, where it's like Matt Moore has X player at whatever. So like, for instance, just going to pick a name out of a hat, LaMelo Ball's 85. Like that kind of a number tends to generate like a lot of discussion about uh, about that specific player. It's very easy to limit that. So in that regard, I think you're at least a little safer from some of the social media attention. I suppose. Um, though, I mean, it's he thinks this player is as good as that player. Yeah. I, I, it's, 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 it's all of a piece, I would say. So I want to start here. Um, when you started doing this project and you kind of set up your baseline of how to approach it, what was the most important thing for you? Like, what were you trying to accomplish with the tiers? What was the goal? for you with setting up tears. So it's a little bit the same thing you're talking about. Um, it was, this was, um, has been frustrating for me both as a fan and as a analyst and on the team side is the sort of squishiness around language about what level each player is. Uh, the NBA is a talent league. We know this, uh, best guy wins. We, we, we know this is a, it's a strong tendency in the playoffs. And so, uh, deciding the difference between, okay, we got a really good player, we got a franchise player, uh, we've got a starter, we've got a good starter, we've got an all-star. Um, the, the the alighting of those differences is something that is very common. If you ask people to, okay, oh, he's a top 10 player in the league, all right, name your top 10, you get 17 names. It's like, okay, well, really, let's be hard-eyed about this. Let's be... Uh, cruel about making cuts even. And so that's really the, the genesis of mine. And then they did some empirical work and I started with some, some stuff that, uh, that Kevin Pelton had done a um, number of years ago. It was actually in the uh, like NBA historical rank project that he did it for was 
okay, a guy at a certain level of play, how much does that bring to in terms of championship equity? And what he found and I, and I was able to replicate is that there's actually a, a sort of an exponential increase or maybe even a, a logarithmic increase in like championship value as you get higher up. So the distinction between we got a top three guy and we got a top 10 guy, that is a, um, that is a, a, like, uh, in my work, I've estimated the difference. Okay. The difference between like having the, the top three guy and having a top 10 guy in your roster is, is you would need like a top 25 ish guy an addition to the, the, the top 10 guy to, to make up for the, that, that top one guy. So that top, that very top group guy. So that's um, the Genesis is really to, to be really strict about making sure that it, it reflects the structure of the league. There's three, five, seven of those guys at the very top at any given time. There's 15 to 20 in the next group down there's, you know, so on and so forth. And just being very strict and very hard eyed about, who actually gets to what level because I think the mistakes we make as fans with expectations, the makes mistakes teams make in terms of their roster building is sort of, well, he's almost as good. So we're going to treat him as if he is as good. Uh, and I really wanted to avoid that. I think that's really interesting from the perspective of when we're trying to establish value, there is a lot of not only squishiness around the language, but we, people tend to bleed these things, right? Where it's like, well, sure, maybe he's not Nikola Jokic, but he's within that range. And it's like, no, like there's a reason that his teams don't win as often. And I think it does get the same kind of effect as we go lower along. One of the things you'll find over on the Elite 100 is uh, I added a playoff rank, which is a really messy project. It's one of the reasons I didn't lead with it. I'm not going to do like a playoff ranking top 100 because it, with guys that haven't been there or guys, Darius Garland being a great example of this, when you have one appearance – and you have failed miserably, I punish you way more for that than somebody that has been there more often and has had more opportunities. And that's not fair, but it's very difficult to parse these things out given the importance of the playoffs. And then I've also got in there a spread value, which is that's a totally metric discussion. I took I took estimated wins added over at dunks and threes um, and translated that into a spread value. And that's essentially to give me something to work off in season, I want to be able to, to put that on our side for it to be like, okay, if you want an idea of how much does Nikola Jokic mean to the spread versus Joel Embiid versus Al Horford versus Scotty Barnes, there's a good kind of wavelength along there. And most of it, to be quite honest, checks out from the eye test. Um, the a very anecdotal, like, oh, that, that, that checks out. There's very few quibbles I have with those numbers. Um, I think a good place to start as far as a discussion point is maybe the most controversial ranking I had because you wanted to talk about it. And actually, for you, it involves two players, but I have LaMelo Ball 84th. Like, I have a LaMelo Ball significantly lower than every other ranking that you're going to find out there. Some of the, the listings on this are always going to be lower or higher because my, my opinion, my analysis is going to influence me. And there are a handful of players that I was like, I want to make a statement on this. Like, I want to I want to get out there that this is like an opinion that I'm putting out there. Um, LaMelo, I am willing to admit, I like in the words of uh, Bill in Kill Bill Part 2, I overreacted. Like th there's a little bit there of, of me, like I'm going to do an, an updated version and based off of public reaction, um, which people will be like, you caved. It's less that and more like, no, and a lot of smart people are like, this is crazy. I'm usually like, oh, it's probably crazy then. So I'm gonna move. I'm gonna move Lamelo up, but I'm not gonna move him up nearly as much as everybody else has him. Um, let's start with with Milas, and I'll get to some of your quibbles. What's what is your uh, quibble? What is your quarrel with Lamelo? Um, I so I got involved in this one a little bit. Um, it wasn't so much as I think that's probably on the the, the very low side. That would like that level would put him in like tier five of of my, and I think that that's. A little harsh. I understand why you would have him uh, lower. Um, I have I have him on mine at a, a sort of a tier above Austin Reeves, but you have I, I, I opine that it's not ridiculous to say that for a number of reasons. Like as an actualized today basketball player, Austin Reeves is more effective. Now, some of that is is you know system and context versus potential. 
And I think that 30 GMs in the league would take LaMelo over Austin Reeves, but that's not what we're, that's not what we're talking about. Like exactly. 30, 30 GMs in the league would, would take Victor Wembanyama over Al Horford. If you're trying to win a title this year, is that like, you know, where, right. um, where, where are you? That's a different question. And, it, and, and talent versus effectiveness are, are different questions. I think we're seeing it frankly this summer in, in FIBA with Austin Reeves being a very effective player in that, in that, aspect that like you know austin reeves maybe he doesn't have the the top end of talent that doesn't have the passing vision and doesn't have the frame and doesn't have the athleticism but he's um being good in the nba is as much about consistency as it is about it's much more about consistency i would say than it's about highlights i think a lot of the players that uh people from sort of the analytics area tend to rate lower are the players who can do very difficult things but not well enough, and they make enough mistakes to sort of give back a lot of that value. It's sort of the the classic example for me is the very is the very efforting defensive guy. Yeah, like a guy can play. Um, I, let's let's use Dylan Brooks as an example. Uh, one of your favorites, I know. Um, generally, a guy who plays very good defense, but also an enormous foul box. Yeah, and you know, one of the leaders in the NBA annually in committing non shooting fouls in the bonus. Each of those is worth about half a point. Like a, a, just a normal possession versus turning it into basically a layup. Turning it, you know, the NBA is going to average 1.5, 1.6 points on a two-shot foul. Um, how many of those do you need to swamp any defensive impact you might have when you, when you, when you say like, all right, a, a really good player is probably plus three per hundred. If you're giving away one point per hundred and fouling too much, how much of your, how much value do you have to, to do everywhere else to overcome that? Um, and so I think that players who kind of do really good things, but also some really bad things tend to get overrated in the public because you see the really good things and you kind of forget about what they're costing you and all the times they kind of mess things up. Yeah. So a lot of it is, you kind of mentioned that I've got a lot of pushback on, there's no GM in the NBA that would take Austin Reeves over LaMelo Ball. And I'm like, that's not at all what the ranking is attempting. The ranking is more attempting the question of is Austin Reeves better and more impactful in his role than LaMelo Ball is in his. Uh, I will fully admit that to me, usage is a privilege. You getting the ball a lot, oftentimes we do the, I think we do the opposite in terms of discussion where it's like, well, you know, I mean, we're going to, we're going to forgive him for these mistakes because he's got the ball in his hands all the time. Does he have to, does he need it? Does he have to have it this much? And if we're going to put that on in, you do get the ball that much. Guess what? It, you're right. It is a huge responsibility. That means that all of your mistakes are that much more costly because they're across a greater span of them. And largely the reason that LaMelo is so low is, and is in typical fashion, I get a lot of, you don't watch like you haven't watched, Hornets games, which of course is ridiculous. And it's especially ridiculous. Like there are teams that I didn't watch as much last year. I can admit that can't watch everybody. I watch a lot of Hornets games the last three seasons for a number of reasons. Among them was I was betting an under two years ago and was like, how am I this far off of this team? And then last year, it really is just like they're on when I'm making dinner or doing laundry. So I happen to watch a lot. The big difference and a reason we'll, we'll talk about this other guy who you think I have too high um, even though you're with me a little bit on LaMelo, at least being lower than the than the average kind of ranking of him, is that I don't think that LaMelo Ball values possessions. The defensive stuff, and you talk about in the tiers program about maybe he's unrealized in terms of what he can do defensively. Could he become Steph Curry in terms of if he gives good effort with high basketball IQ and feel for the game? Um, I would like him to, I don't know, like I would start with, does he understand the defense exists? Like he does, he know that like there is this time when he doesn't, when his team doesn't have the ball. We could start with knowing that. And then we can kind of move to the big gap between him and Tyrese Halliburton is I think Tyrese Halliburton has excellent feel for his shot selection. LaMelo Ball may have great feel for the game in terms of slick passes and how to navigate an offense, he has extremely poor decision-making, in my opinion, when it comes to what choices to make with that feel. And that, to me, is why you have this massive gap. And it's honestly, that's part of the gap between him and Austin Reeves as well, is that I feel like Austin Reeves has a good understanding of what not to do in a lot of situations, of where not to take up space 
offensively. And when he does take up space, he does so efficiently. Tyrese Halliburton is extremely efficient in how he takes up space. LaMelo, even though the numbers are not terrible, they're at the rim. They are catastrophic. He's fifth percentile there. But in general, I find that LaMelo Ball doesn't value possessions enough to warrant his usage, which in turn hurts the rest of his team. That would be my argument there. I think that's going a little too far. And I'm going to risk being a little bit of a little bit hypocritical here in that you do. I mean, what's the next best option on that team? Who else should have the ball? And it's like, oh, you'd like to put the ball in Kelly Oubre's hands or Terry Rozier's hands or Terry Rozier's good. Whatever is left of 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 uh, Gordon Hayward, like, you know, there's on on some level, it's the 30th ranked offense in the league last year. Um, Now, he didn't elevate it. I mean, he only played 30 some games, which is a whole other thing. Um, But it's also like the level of talent is there is what it is. And we do have to avoid, though. I think what you're hinting at earlier is this is something that I've become very cognizant of over recent years is like double counting uh, unfavorable context almost like he has great top line numbers. Part of the reason he has great top line numbers is his teammates are bad. And so it's like, well, he can't hold his efficiency against him because his teammates are bad. But part of the reason he gets to, you know, have the ball enough and have carry a 30 usage is because his teammates are bad. And so you're giving him like both the, the benefit of the, the, the accumulation of having no competition for shots. Uh, no competition for stats. I mean, it's sort of a, um, it's it's not literally true, but an NBA team gets 80 points, 25 rebounds and 15 assists just for, for, for showing up for opening tip. Yep. And who get, who those stats end up with are often a matter of sort of choice. Like, or they're all like, who's a guy that we're featuring? Like for whatever reason, it might be a conscious choice to try to goose somebody's number. It might just be, out of convenience, it might be that 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 a certain player is um, very attuned to getting their numbers in games that don't matter. Um, and that's not I'm not saying that's Lamelo. I'm saying there are guys around the league we've seen do that. So I think you are being slightly harsh on him that way. And but on the other hand, like I think that that we both enjoy Tyrese Halliburton more, like viscerally. I think that that we both uh, Lamelo has in common with with Trey a shot that we both hate, which is the 18 seconds on the clock. My guy just scored on me. I'm pulling up from 28 shot. Yes. Um, and that like that that's grading, but it doesn't actually happen that much, but it gets like, it, it sticks in our mind. It's like, Oh, this guy's got a terrible feel. Cause he takes this, this one terrible shot. It's like, well, these all games also don't really matter. And would he take that shot in a, in a more competitive environment? I don't know. Um, and so when part, part of mine is I've tried to, be as context free as possible. Uh, it's not possible really because so much of player production is based on context, but trying to imagine this player in a relatively neutral context, what would they look like? Mm. Um, See, and I think I go the other way where I'm not going to reward you for your teammates being bad. Like that's a concept that I've taken from the MVP discussion of, and especially in part when it's a high usage player, like we're talking about with these guys, then again, it's okay, but you have the ball all the time. Your job is to make them better. That's the job. And it's like, well, he can't because they're so bad. And my response is like, how far are you from others that we would compare you to in these regards? And I would argue that a lot of the guys that Tyrese Halliburton was running up and down the floor with last year were not like Miles Turner missed a bunch of time, but he healed sure. Like he had he had more NBA talent than LaMelo had with all the injuries that they had last year. And it was only 36 games for sure. But even if we compare the 2022 numbers for LaMelo versus what Tyrese was able to accomplish last year, we still run into Tyrese being measurably more impactful, more efficient, making others better. And so I go the opposite direction where I'm like, yeah, no, your team is bad for sure, which means it's all the more important that what you do matters. You can contribute. Some of these guys can contribute less on good teams more with more impact rather than if you're going to be the best guy on this bad team, I better be able to acquit you pretty easily. 
And with LaMelo, I was unable to. So there's a couple things to unpack there. First, I think that, that I mean, uh, you have Halliburton 17th. Is that where you end up with him? Uh, somewhere in there, high teens? Uh, yeah, 17th. Oh, so I have a hard time putting a guy with a sub 25 usage that high. Hmm. It's just, it's just like, you know, maybe you can get like a prime Chris Paul, maybe a prime defensive anchor center who, you know, like the, the, uh, I know we're going to argue about him later, but the, the absolute peak of Rudy Gobert's powers, maybe he'd be, he, you know, and I, I had him that high. It's just, it's, I think we've come to a spot where elite level individual creation is the single most important skill in basketball. Now, Elite level, I think there's a the, to unpack a little bit. Like I think there's a a through line in terms of players that we both are lower on than consensus is guys who do okay with high usage. It's like that's yes, neat. that's great. Um, how do you balance that? And you know, another guy, uh, uh, Brandon Ingram is another guy who certainly probably falls into that. I I think that the that there's almost a difference there. I have I have Lamelo higher than Brandon Ingram in part because he does bring like more of the everything else yeah than 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 ingram does but that's that's not to you know expand the discussion with other players but i so i feel like that's going like super high on on like you you know you get to you get into that range and it's just like all right this guy is good enough that with perfect team construction around him he's the best player on a contender and i think that's too far for for halliburton i think that's Mm markedly too far like if he's your second third or third best guy alongside some other like maybe even comparable players all right i can see that i don't know if there's just there's enough there for really in any realistic construction like who who in the nba is the second best player on a tyrese halliburton team that is a legit conference finals level team pascal siakam i did no chance I'm sorry. That's not, I don't think that's close to, I don't think that's the, I think, you know, that's a, that's a, we're probably going to, uh, we, we might, uh, not have to go into the play in and we might Oof. be, we, wow. we might be, uh, we might be competitive in the first round. Yeah. I don't know. I think I'm, Bam out of bio is sort of maybe like, I start to even think about it. Yeah. Well, I have Pascal, I think probably higher than, than you do. And I have Pascal markedly higher than, than Bam because of Bam's general, um, Bam could be a lot higher, but Bam never chooses to be. Bam never chooses to to be more forceful. Bam never chooses to be more impactful. Bam let Bam defers too much. Bam just like there are long stretches and games and seasons, quite honestly, where he just drifts and in series and it's a problem. And if he didn't do that, I would have him like top fifteen, because I think he's incredible. A lot with Halley, like the usage stuff, the absence of and I'd be curious where you have him based off of because you have a better usage metric that you've developed than the standards, which ignore assists. And that to me is a lot of it is that before Harden got back and started cranking and did what he always does, which is lead the league in assists. Halley was leading the league in assists while shooting incredibly efficiently from the field, scoring 20 plus. And so like you have this entire combination of factors where I'm just like, Halley is an extremely efficient guy who makes constant plays for others. And a lot of this is that I did a deep dive on in mid season to be like, cause I was very, I was reluctant to put Halley as far as, as some of my cohorts at action were like, there was a lot of most improved player bets on Halley last year and at my, at my shop. And I was reluctant. And so I was like, all right, I want to see what's going on with this, with, with this guy. I want to really understand what's going on with Halley with the Pacers. Like I knew him from Sacramento, but I want to do a deep dive. And then after I did the deep dive, I was just like, this is maybe like, this is maybe the second best passer in the NBA. Uh, location on target, creativity, precision, feel for the game, and t- like the ability to deliver the pass before the defense has read his pass and is it reacting. The degree to which he is ahead of the defense is phenomenal. And so for me, I can like look at Hallie and be like, no, no, no he can be an engine. You're going to have to have like great finishers and great defenders and all like that's what i was kind of saying is like it wouldn't it couldn't be like pascal siakam and then just like a bunch of guys you know just another guy a bunch of jags like you can't do that um but it would have to be like siakam let me put it this way uh if you take out scotty barnes you put tyrese halliburton on the raptors my opinion of them changes dramatically 
like it shifts way levels. Like I'm betting they're over and I'm betting them to make the playoffs. And I'm probably looking at them as like a team that could make second round or better. And so once we get to there, I'm like, well, it's a hop, skip and a jump to you made a conference finals the same way the Blazers in 2019 made the finals or the Mavericks in 2022 made the, made the conference finals. Like, so yeah, that's, that's a, that's a whole other argument to get into is like, I, um, like those, those are teams that, this 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 is a distinction that seems weird, but those are teams that made the conference finals without necessarily yes. necessarily being conference finals level teams. That's that's fair. If you're asking me about like being a conference finals level worthy team, you're absolutely right that I can't yeah. really get to a spot where ha- where Hallie's the number one and there's a good enough number two. Yeah. No, this is all fair though. At the same time, I do how much of what you're like the 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 Raptors specifically how much of that is like the Raptors kind of mesh of skill sets crying out for kind of creation in an engine um you know this is sort of the the um it's the flip side of what I used to call the perk effect where where for a number of years Nick Collison always showed up super highly in like impact metrics because he's coming into the game for Kendrick Perkins <laughs> so there's yeah. a certain so in his like his 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 like RAPM or something like that he was sort of getting a bump for being not that guy yeah and this is the the you know the um, in some ways I think that this is certainly with with even as with Trey I think to an extent even with like Steph or Dame there's been a little bit of this effect is that their teams are constructed so reliantly on their creation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that it almost overstates their impact because when they go off the floor, the team sucks. Jokic is is quite honestly this kind of comp where every other player on the Nuggets gets to spend usually some time next to Nikola Jokic and have their numbers bumped up. The Nuggets have not employed a backup center that's viable since Mason Plumley. And don't get me wrong, like DeAndre Jordan is bad and not an NBA player uh, great for the locker room, incredible presence last year, had some key moments for them throughout the season. I want to give DeAndre credit, but like, this is part of it is all of the, like one thing I've said is all of the centers are going to look absolutely horrible because none of them get to spend time with Jokic. Like everybody else gets that benefit and uh, the centers do not. And so like, this is part of Jokic's thing too, it's, where you're going to look better because the backups, DeAndre Jordan. So the, the, the point I'm making is sort of orthogonal to that in that, um, the play, because if the guy is the only person on the roster who can do certain thing, yeah, they're going to they're going to seem more impactful than maybe they might be on a more balanced roster construction. This is how you get to the point of of you know I know we're bouncing around, but uh, you know there's a series of articles written by uh, Benjamin Morris, formerly of, of Five Thirty Eight, about why him arguing semi tongue in cheek that Dennis Rodman's the greatest player of all time. Um, and in part, it was because of the impact, like on some stuff that those Bulls teams had with him not not available. And it was like, okay, well, yeah, the reason they had Luke Longley and Bill Wennington as their centers is because they didn't need to worry about rebounding because they had Dennis Rodman. So if, if they have a different player, they probably build the team differently. And his sort of outsized impact in that one narrow area is muted a little bit because it's not as outsized an impact because the team hasn't sort of mid-maxed that skill set. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and so that I think with like the the back to the analogy you're making, plugging in Halliburton on a team that is bereft of sort of uh, on-ball creation as the Raptors have sort of been since 2019, uh it's like he's going to look better because the baseline of what he's replacing yeah. in that regard is pretty low. Yeah, I think for me, it's that I still feel like you can replace Trey with Halliburton, and I like the Hawks better. You can replace um, most of the that's other. An aesthetic, like, that's an aesthetic judgment, but. Uh. Yeah. Um, I mean, even like, here's a good example is like De'Aaron Fox, who um, you're high on and and I like a lot. But like, I think if you if you did switch out Halliburton for Fox, not to go down that road and, and make it more painful, because I think that both teams won that trade and it's worked out great. But based off of how Halliburton has performed last year and what he's shown me, uh, I do think that the Kings are marginally better, at least offensively, uh, with De'Aaron. Now you can counter with the defensive argument. That's why I have them two slots apart. That's definitely like within range. But I think that that's like a good example of if even if we take the the role. And I I do think 
I'm making an assumption here, which I think is a fair distinction for us to have be on the other sides of, which is you're saying like, I'm a little bit skeptical of guys that don't have that usage. And I'm making more of, I'm a little bit more on the side of, if you are so efficient, I think you can take on more usage and still be that level of impact. And so I think Hallie can have the ball more, shoot more, and still be as impactful. Um, I want to move on. I want to ask you some stuff about, there's three guys that that are in the MVP discussion and are going to be bets made by various people this upcoming season. I want to get your thoughts on the three of them because we're close on most of these guys. Um, but I wanted to kind of get into the differentials of where we're at. And the first guy is my favorite long shot to win most valuable player. Uh, and that would be Shea Gilgis Alexander, who I am like, just cannot be higher on this kid. And we're seeing why in FIBA play and last year and all these types of things. And uh, you've got him in two C you've got him in a, in a tier with Jamal Murray, Paul George, James Harden. And those are all really good players. Um, I, on, on the other hand, uh, have Shea notably higher at, uh, I have him 10th. I have him. Well, it's not that much different actually, because my tier okay. two C is, is like 15 to 18. Yeah. So it's not, well, what's interesting though is, not... is we talked about like the exponential difference in those, in the, in the tiers. Right. And so the tier one versus the tier two, I think is like an important distinction. Uh, I'm a little surprised you're not stronger on Shea because like I was using the, the, the athletics layout is really good on all of these things, by the way, you can compare the metrics that, that Seth has valued and pulled uh, to evaluate these players and compare them very quickly. So like I'm comparing like Shea versus Jamal Murray and I'm like, but Shea's like way better and like, and I know where it comes from, which is Jamal just absolutely fucking destroyed everyone in the playoffs. And, and has, it should be noted like the last two times he played in the playoffs, he did that also. Yes. He has two, so, conse- he has con- two consecutive playoff runs where he was destroyer of worlds. Um, so I get it, but I am kind of curious as to why, what Shea has kind of shown in the last two seasons, honestly. Um, and what the, this gets into an interesting question of, the playoff thing because Shea actually has been in the playoffs. Wasn't the same role. Wasn't the same player, but did have runs. Good. And, and was just kind of, eh. yeah, he was just, yeah. he was not, he, it wasn't that he was like terrible. It wasn't like Darius Garland this year, but it was just like, eh, okay. He's a guy. Uh, so what I'm curious. Have, what would he looked like in those playoff runs? If he had been asked to play the same role that Darius Garland right. was right. like, because he wasn't ready. And now right. he, you know, it is, you know, he, he was playing alongside, you know, in a, in a sort of a, a happy to be there, feel good Clippers team before they went, went down the road, they went down, uh, which by the way, no, no shade at them for if, if you have the opportunity to get Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, you do it. Um, and then, you know, on that OKC team, uh, you know, he was the, he was the second, third, fourth guy. And, and the first guy was, you know, one of the the great you know puppeteers of certainly in his late prime was Chris Paul. So he was very like almost tertiary uh, on on that team. So the the point being is that he hasn't you know contrast with Murray. Yeah, he's been great in the regular season. His availability has been what it's been. Not all through his own fault. I think there's some organizational choice there. But he he hasn't had the opportunity to prove things and. Um, Another sort of defining thing for me in, in how I went about this is in general, I wanted to err on being a year too late on guys and being a year too early. Yeah. In part, that's, that's sort of my distaste at the, at the, the hype boom bust cycle where a guy gets anointed after three good games and it's like unfair. And then the expectations are placed on him, and then he gets like killed for not meeting those expectations, which were ridiculous in the first place that just because he had three good games, he, so you know, I suspect Shea will be just fine in the playoffs, but we kind of got to see it as a as a primary a little bit before we can we can really go crazy on 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 him relative to to guys who have proven that they can survive and thrive in that sort of environment. One of the big challenges for me with this was that I had to find I didn't want to go one way or the other. I didn't want to be all, you got to have proven it. And I, I, I didn't want to go, let's anticipate and only anticipate. And so I tried to balance the two sides. And the way that that's going to come out is if you disagree, you're going to feel it's arbitrary. 
And if you agree, you're going to feel like it's a great feel for the league. Like that's, that's the dichotomy that I'm going to wind up with. Right. And the answer is probably somewhere in the middle is that, you know, I think with Shay there, I do have like, I have no reason with where he, the player he is now, if you're like, what do you expect of him in the playoffs? I'm like, Oh, I think he's gonna be great. With Darius Garland, I expected way better. And that's one of the reasons I've, again, I've like, will admit, I overly have punished Garland because I had high expectations. And I'm like, well, you were extremely worse than I thought you were going to be. And you've only, all I have is this one run to go off of. So I can't like compare you across. So you're going to like, you're, I'm deciding you're going to take the hit this year. And it's going to give you a lot of room to move up next year, but that's where I'm going to go at. With Shea, I don't have any sort of, there's nothing I can point to outside of, you know, because his mid-range pull-up is really effective. He's one of the best jump shooters in the league off of the dribble. He's just not one of the most prolific three-point shooters off the dribble, but he's able to effectively punish drop defense. If you blitz him, he's going to pass out of it. If like, there's all these ways that I'm not worried about Shea versus some of the other guys who would take a hit based off of the playoff performance. I'm not worried about him as a defender. So I'm definitely with most of the guys in the playoffs that don't have a lot of experience I have erred on the side of, well, look, you haven't been there, so I don't know. Like, you don't get any credit for it because you haven't been there. With Shea, I am definitely giving him, like, even though you haven't been there, I'm going to give you, I'm going, I think you're going to be fine and you're going to succeed. That's the only reason, though, why I don't have him higher (laughs) is that that's how high on him at this point is I think he's that ridiculous and that good of an engine and that uh, capable of being prolific. And you're definitely right that he's falling into the boom bust cycle. I want to ask you about one of your favorite players to discuss. You and I have gone so far around on them. Fast day to get into this discussion. It's not Rudy. No, no. Let's talk Donovan Mitchell, who you have three A, my friend. And that is a, that is, what, what does that shake out to in terms of the number range? Uh, that puts him in the sort of the 19 to, I know, the 19 through 24 range. Okay. By the way, like can we can we talk about the other players who are in that group with him before you yes. take it like it's like the other players in that group are Bam Adebayo, Jalen Brown, Jaron Jackson, Anthony Edwards, De'Aaron Fox. Yeah. That's a pretty solid and I think appropriate peer group. So it's interesting in that he's a high usage guy with regular season success as a high usage guy, extreme success in a high usage environment. The playoff stuff I actually think is a little underrated in that like I think his last playoff performance versus Dallas has less has like that was a been a, that was a damaging series for him, and fairly so. I, I think it, he got targeted on defense into oblivion, was ineffective. I think he didn't quit on the team, but that entire team basically once Jalen Brown stole their soul or not Jalen Brown Jalen Brunson stole their soul. That entire team was like, yeah, it's time to break this thing up. We don't have it. Like we just do not have it, and it fell apart. Donovan, I thought struggled in the playoffs this year, but it was largely on account of how much of an uphill climb all of the offensive stuff was for them for a number of reasons that I do not want to get into because of how much I've hashed it out uh, and how much frustrated it makes me. He wasn't targeted as much defensively. I thought in this year's playoffs, maybe as he was in the, in the Dallas series, they didn't try to as much and it's harder to with Cleveland's personnel to do that than it was versus versus Utah. I still think that Mitchell is capable of pretty amazing things. One of the things that you kind of target him for is his propensity for hero ball. And for me, it's all about like, okay, but can you play hero ball at an efficient, effective level? If you're surrounded by like a team that can hang. And I understand your reasonings for why maybe he can't do it well enough, but that I think is maybe the large point of where we wind up going as I'm just like, I think with the right team, Donovan Mitchell could be the best player in a playoff series and could dominate. And like, we're talking second round or conference finals. I think that he's that good. Uh, and I think that you think he's more, it was like Jalen Brown's a number two. Um, Bam is a number two. Uh, De'Aaron Fox is arguably a number two next to Domanus, or at least he shares number one status versus Donovan is absolutely one in these spots. And that difference. I, I, I think that if for the, oh. You know, assuming he sticks around in Cleveland, haha. Um, like he's sort of the the kind of number two that a less traditional best player, like what we hope Evan Mobley can be, like what Bam Bam Adebayo has 
threatened to be at times. Uh, maybe even like a Jaron Jackson, like the guy who is who is the most impactful player without necessarily being like super ball and hands guy. Maybe uh, maybe next to you know Anthony Davis. Maybe that's maybe the the um, yeah he's the engine, but he's not the best player. Mm. I think that's where he that that's sort of where he fits in and like you know you compare him to to say Jalen Brown who's actually fairly seamlessly like you know you, you you can say what you want about some of Jalen Brown's skill deficits i think he 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 kind of has understood the assignment of his role in Boston in a way that that Mitchell has sort of chafed against at times almost in the last 3 to 4 years i mean it like Utah like it's not even the, his last year in Utah. It's the second to last year where they played a way they, they played all season. And then they get the first time they face any sort of adversity in the playoffs, their whole offensive system goes out the window and it's like, Oh, one screen. Well, that didn't work when we go one-on-one. Yeah. I mean, I thought that they, they acquitted themselves fairly well. I know that the Kawhi injury kind of like says like you lost a Kawhi or you lost the Clippers without Kawhi. I get that. You got, I mean, he, you know, he got, he got, he got beat by, he got outplayed by Reggie Jackson. Yeah. Over the back half of that series. Like, you know. Yeah. I think he deserves, but it's also like, he deserves a lot. And this was effectively, you and I argued this, that entire season of who deserved more credit for being the one that got them to that number one seed and got them to that spot in the playoffs. Was it Donovan or was it Rudy? And that, and the answer is probably both that the, the tandem of them is what made them successful. And they, um, and the fact that they, I mean, we talked earlier about min maxing, but I think they min max the skill sets around those two guys. In that, okay, we don't need on ball defense or on ball creation because these guys have those have have the defense and the offensive creation covered. So let's get some guys who can you know connect and pass and shoot and play the blender stuff, and and it'll be great. And then you get into the playoffs and you need a system that's a little more robust, and it sort of falls down to at sort of all aspects almost. Yeah. And one thing I will say is I do think that much the same way that DeRozan's arrival, I think has limited, has hurt Levine. I think Levine's regressed in part because DeRozan and the role that he's taken on. I think Darius Garland has taken a step back because he's had to cede so much ground to Mitchell. Like Darius was an all-star and was phenomenal and was really good and has like a lot more, uh, still has a lot of upside, I think left. And he's had to make so much room for Mitchell ball for spider ball that, I think it hurts him a little bit and and in those ways, I think maybe you're right that I'm overlooking how Donovan hurts his team rather than all the things I look at where it's like, well, yeah, he has weaknesses, but he's so good at what he does. And then I think that tension there is, is what's interesting about them. So I think, I think that, that, that me having him as high as I do is a reflection of he's actually, you know, there's, there's kind of an imaginary line of good enough at that stuff. And he's like just above that line. And whereas some other players who I'm lower on are, are maybe below, either just below or somewhat below, but he's above that line. But at the same time, he's not like he's okay. He's not Devin Booker. He's not Jason Tatum. He's not Shea right. Gilders Alexander. Right. I am kind of interesting about because you've got in here the championship value of a replacement relative to tier one. Mm-hmm. Um, I was curious about the differential between inside the tier one because you don't have that listed that I've seen at least um, about. And the reason I bring this up is Joel, where you have Joel in 1B with Luca, And that's where most people are going to have Embiid. Is they're going to have him in the tier with Kevin Durant, it's Joel Embiid and Luka Doncic in tier 1B, 4 to 6. Uh, I have Embiid, I, like, again, this was a definitely, I, like, I'm listing my opinion here. I have Embiid ninth, And I had him several spots lower to initially begin with him, which is like, let's save the mentions Let's assume that I'm that I'm not as correct as I feel I am on him, and let's at least give him a top ten ranking because I definitely had him in the teens initially based off of his availability um, and what I see are extreme playoff vulnerabilities that I just am baffled that people do not like. Th- he's starting to catch heat for it, but I still feel like on the analyst side we do not pay attention to Joel Embiid's playoff weaknesses enough. I am curious from that championship value stuff about the difference between one a and one B and one C to kind of evaluate how much Embiid matters to a team's championship. So that I I don't, I don't think that that um, 
I don't think that metric really is amenable to the, to, to, to splitting that finely simply okay. because we're talking about sort of reg, regular, how, you know, on average regular season value propagates into, into playoff value. Um, and so that's not really, I haven't, you know, there are guys who are going to have more or less value in the regular season based on any number of factors. And there are, uh, and that has some bearing, but not really, not, it's not determinative at all about how well they're going to do in a playoff setting. So I, I, it's not a, it's not a distinction that I necessarily feel like is, is even useful to make almost because uh, that, th- that metric is, is more of a, like a quick and dirty guidepost. So it's right. a big dial, not a little dial thing. It's sort of a, you know, in the past, I've looked at sort of the a point system between where, where players are in tiers and you get to, you know, the, 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 the numbers are pretty arbitrary, but you get to, you know, a, a tier one player is worth about seven points, uh, tier two players, like four and a quarter, some, somewhere in there um, and on down the line. And you get to about, you know, low teens is typically where conference final plus teams come from is teams with that level of talent. So um, it's more of a, again, it's more of that like quick and dirty, like broadly speaking, from a talent perspective, is this this team good enough? Um, and I think that, that that you know he has been on teams that have been good enough, so that those sort of very micro uh, foibles that you're talking about do come into play. And I don't think those are necessarily as amenable to kind of model based analysis. Those are sort of observational, like okay, the conditioning, like all right. On some level, like they got beat by the Hawks two years ago because Doc decided he had to play Dwight Howard every fourth quarter. On the other hand, like Joel Embiid can't play 12 straight minutes in the fourth quarter of a playoff game. Yeah. Um, and that's to some degree, that's, you know, enormous human being to some degree. That's probably a, a fault of conditioning and the, the answer somewhere in between. So it's it's that's that's sort of somewhat a failing on his part somewhat a failing outside of his control. But as I said, in my right about him, you do get the thing that, you know, with Embiid, it's just sort of always been something that is yeah. like, Oh, he got, he got a little hurt. He got, you know, he got tired. He got his, his teammates messed up. His coach was yeah. this guy. And, and so, on. so, you know, it's the, uh, it's the justified thing. You know, you, you, you wake up more in the morning and you, you have a conversation with an asshole. You talk with an asshole. If all you do all day is talk to assholes. You're probably the asshole. So it's, it's, you know, um, at a certain point, just the, the confluence of stuff that just seems to happen around him is a fair critique, but he's been the second best player in the regular season, not just over the last three years, I would say each of the last three years. And I would have, I would have voted for Jokic for MVP last year as well. So, um, but I, but in the, and on that level, like you do have to credit that and there's no obvious, Playoff, like let's put it this way: if there's if there's not obvious playoff non viability in Jokic's game before this year, which I think we both agreed there wasn't, I don't see how you can necessarily say there's playoff non non viability inherent in Embiid's game. Well, my here, here would be the thing: one, um, the conversation about Jokic was always ridiculous because he already had a conference finals run. Two, he'd already proven to be effective. Uh, three, if you really pay attention to the Warrior series, that was really funny. Is like people just like glossed over, like, oh, it was over in five. And it's like, look at the course of the Warrior series, which is like he had lots of problems with Draymond early, and then he solved him. And over the last three games of that series, they got by on their offense versus the rest of Denver's relative lack of firepower. But there's a reason that Draymond at the end of it gave gave Jokic the very long, like, you made me a better player speech. Like, no one has ever been like, you made me a better player, Joel. Nobody has ever done that. Um, two, a good example of his limitations, particularly in playoff setting, is it's and it translates to why he's so successful in the regular season. Uh, no one tries to take away things in the regular season. They just kind of live with it like, oh, man, and beat cooked us because we didn't ever try anything different on pick and roll because it's game 65, and why would we do that? After game... It was either game five or game six of the Celtics series. He said, he made a quote about, I didn't get the ball enough. And to me, it was like the perfect illustration of why he's so limited in that you don't have this problem with Jokic because Jokic can bring the ball up and Jokic will always be able, like you can move him to the high post. You can move him to the block. You can move him to the corner. You can get him on the run. You can move Jokic off of screens. And you're like, well, that's Jokic. Fine. He's not as good as Jokic. 
but look at all the other guys that we consider in this tier. Jason Tatum doesn't have problems getting the ball. Uh, Devin Booker doesn't have problems getting the ball. Uh, Luka Doncic doesn't have problems getting the ball. It's because they're not reliant on someone else to set them up constantly. And what happened in the Celtics series in large part was that Boston, for some reason, in games three and four, uh, were very much in the in the, like if you go back and you watch they weren't guarding the pick and pop. They were so worried about shooters for some reason that they were just giving Joel that mid-range J, which is not everything that he wants, but it's his preferred. He doesn't have to bang, doesn't have to move, doesn't have to drive, doesn't have to dribble, doesn't have to read the floor. He just grabs it and he shoots a little midi and then he shimmies his way on back. And when the Celtics decided, well, let's take that away, nothing. There was nothing left. Can't post up because if, they, if he posts up, they're going to double team him and he can't pass out of a double team. Can't go to the perimeter and and face up out of it because he doesn't have the mobility. I I would suggest that can't post up because they didn't have anyone who who could or would enter him, enter the ball to him in in the spot that wasn't pulling him to eight. I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it's not a terribly dissimilar argument. I mean, you doesn't seem like there are, there are that many players who who do know how to enter the ball into the post. But part of that is, is also, I mean, the, and this is sort of the in the, again the it's always something is that the this version uh, the current version of the Sixers for however long uh, it stays has devolved into a James Harden team in the playoffs, and I don't know how much of that again it's always something, but how much of that is you know a failing on Embiid's part, and how much of that is like you're putting the wrong guys with him. Yeah, um, for me, it's like we could just go back and we can we can pretty clearly watch when he does get the ball. The, his struggles with passing are no, a big yeah, problem. yeah. Oh, he he does he does have a, you know out of tur- doubles in the post, he's got a high turnover rate. So, it's but I do think one of the things if we're going to look at this from a especially from a betting perspective is like your your confidence in him still being this level of impact in the regular season. If he chooses to play sixty five, if he chooses to play sixty five plus, um, he's still going to be a pretty good value for. For MVP, as he has been good value to bet, even when he's lost, he's been able to build good positions on him throughout the last couple of years. Uh, I want to transition and talk as we kind of wrap up about a few veterans that I think are really interesting for for these teams and the impact that they're going to have. You have given them a little bit more credit than I am. I am going the other way where you're like, if they've done it, I'm going to give them credit for it. If they haven't, I'm going to be resistant. And I went more to, if I see a slide, I'm getting ahead of it because I'm very worried. And a really important one for this is Chris Middleton. Uh, You have Chris 3B, which is 25 to 33. I have Chris 39th in my ranking, 38th, I'm sorry, uh, right behind Zach Levine. That doesn't sound like a significant gap here. But I do, yeah. Uh, So I do think that there's like a significant slide here. I am worried about Chris's availability. I am worried about Chris's impact. I am worried about, and much of this is is an interesting question of how much of the last two years was him protecting himself to make sure that he got this contract? Because there was just like a lot of co- talk about how much the money was going to matter to him. And the Bucks came through and paid him, but it also meant that their roster is now paper thin. So his importance is amplified. So if he is closer to your range than he is to my range, the Bucks floor goes considerably up. And if he is closer to my range than yours, then my Bucks under bet, which I bet immediately once the numbers came out, is looking a whole lot better. So, I, without getting into the specifics of the that of 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 the player, um, I've do I have tried to give the benefit of the doubt on if it's an acute okay, he had surgery and he wasn't right all season. You get kind of one bite at that, one sort of mulligan at that. Like, all right, he was compromised. It's not. Maybe there's some slide, but I think the 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 acute sort of, you know, five months off of knee surgery or whatever is a bigger is a bigger vector than than age is likely to be. So, uh, you know, if he when he is his his health probably returns him to a level maybe a little bit below what his peak was, but I already have him below where his peak was in, right in in so um I, I think that's sort of where those things intercept is like he might be getting a little worse because of age but physically he will be better this year than he was last year 
I think. Or the wheels have just come off and he's done. And if, if that happens, like that'll be reflected in, in, in next year's. But I, but I don't want to assume sort of based off of one kind of string of, of injuredness. Uh, and it's in, in for non for, especially for a non like catastrophic type injury. It's not like, not an Achilles, not a, not a, you know, not an ACL where, um, yeah. so not, not these sort of career affecting, you know, not a broken leg, not those, the, those kind of career trajectory potentially affecting kind of things, you know, guys, guys play healthy, less healthy all the time. And sort of trying to pick the midpoint there is sort of, of, of part of the, the, the issue, because, you know, that's an easy way to be wrong on a guy is like, ah, he's hurt. He's done. It's like, well, no, he just had a, he had a rough, we've seen guys, we've seen guys have rough years and come, come back to, to form. It happens all the time. And he's at the age where maybe that starts to not be a thing, but he's not like ancient and he's not, he doesn't have a game that's like based on some extravagant burst that he, he actually, he never actually had. So that's sort of where the benefit of the doubt uh, kind of comes from for me there. And I think I, I think I've been fairly consistent across players and across years in providing that benefit of the doubt. Those are all, that's all very good reasoning. I, I think I am, I am more concerned about what his game is going to look like as the miles rack up than some. Uh, another guy like that is Draymond Green and the Warriors. So my big thing with Draymond is just Draymond went from like, look, it may be a little shaky, but he could still shoot a little bit and he can score a little bit. And then, like, as the seasons went on, it went to, like, look, he's not, like, a major – he's not going to be a major scorer, but he's capable enough, and he'll hurt you, and he'll have the occasional game where you're like, man, Draymond killed us with that. To now, it's like, Draymond can't – like, Draymond can't – like, layups are scary attempts. And so I have him 54, and that pains me because of how valuable I think he is defensively, and he's such a smart player, and he's the engine – like, all the things that I value, Draymond is – but I'm worried more and more about how teams are going to scheme against him with how sharply I've kind of started to see the offensive viability decline. Um, you've given him a little bit more credit by having him in, in this tier. And I'm curious, I want to know if maybe I'm a little too worried about Draymond's like Draymond was really available last season. He had injuries the year before, but he is getting, you know, getting older and I'm, and I'm worried about both availability and his ability to be viable in some of these ways and what that means as he cements, as he gets older. Um, I would say uh, you, like some of the details and skills might be different, but I mean, run that entire conversation I had about Middleton back. I think it's, right. I think it's a very similar, like, yeah, it's like, you know, there's, there's certainly there's, you know, uh, there's, those aren't the only two like veterans who are sort of like, I've got my eye on you. And, you know, if, if it, we don't have to get that, we get to Christmas and I'd be like, nope, he needs to be lower. And that's Draymond. That's, that's Chris Middleton. That's Kevin Durant, frankly, is someone in there um, that might be Giannis. Um, that's so sort of um, a thing that, that for some, I mentioned Chris Middleton's game, not being dependent on athleticism. Uh, Giannis's is um, if, if, you know, a guy who's had some issues declines a little bit, probably takes him out of the top tier. So that's something I'm, I'm watching for this year. I'm not saying it's going to happen. It's just one of those things that you're, you're looking out for. Um, there's probably a few other players who are, um, obviously Chris Paul, you know, is sort of tumble already, you know, Anthony Davis, you know, they're, you know, kind of guys getting into that, that the guys with a lot of mileage getting into that, like early thirties area, it's sort of your, your, you do have an eye on them. But maybe that's kind to- of the key here is that I may have gone too far and I have my eye on them. And so I'm going to drop them when they haven't necessarily earned that drop yet might be where I'm at too. Yeah. And that's, and that's sort of that, that is sort of a, uh, a challenge of doing this only like semi-annually is right. like, well, if it's wrong, it's going to be out there wrong for a number of months, but I'm, but I sort of, I, again, um, knowing you, you're You're probably going to tend to miss one way or the other. I've, consciously chosen to be too late rather than too early before we get out of here let's do as we as we have to we have to talk about rudy gobert because you and i have fought more about rudy gobert than any other player although i will here's what's here's what's really interesting about this edition of our of our argument is that historically i've basically been i, I was very high on rudy early i was hyping him in like his rookie season and second year i was like this guy's amazing 
And then we started to have conversations about, is he one of the most impactful offensive players in the league? And I, whoa, 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 whoa. Can't make a hook shot. This is a problem. And then we had like the battle about it. And like, I was a spider guy. So like, I was more on the demit side and through all the problems. So we've had like this whole thing, Seth and I have. And not to say that, that Seth has, has attributed him as one of the most impactful offensive players. That was like a purely metric argument made by some in the space. So Rudy, you, you still have in a very respectful tier three C between 34 and 39. He's with DeMar DeRozan, LaMelo Ball, notably, Mikhail Bridges and Tyrese Halliburton. Uh, I have Rudy way down at uh, 67. And I, this is one that I will cop to. You have a better understanding of the metrics. And so you're going to have a more nuanced view. Some of this is simply for me where he ranks out on EPM, which is my safety blanket that I cuddle with at night is EPM. And those numbers did not reflect as, as well on him as some of the other metrics you mentioned in there, the defensive rating differential when he's on and off floor. And here's kind of the thing is like, I kind of think you're closer to right here because I actually like the way that he played last year. I thought he gave good effort. I think he was in a really tough spot with how those nobody, the reaction was very evident from all of the quotes that everybody was like, what the fuck is this with that trade? Not nationally, the wolves sentiment was that. And I genuinely think it took five months or more for the team to be like, look, he's here. This is what we got. We got to make this work. And then, of course, there was the problem in the play-in game. But still, once Mike Conley arrived, it got a lot better because of D'Angelo Russell's feelings about him. <laughs> I think he was in a tough spot. And I think that he actually did more in terms of individual scoring last year. He showed a little bit more. And they trusted him a little bit more than Utah did, which I'm always going to be curious about. Where was that edict coming from in Utah of, like, never pass to Rudy? Like, was that from Donovan? Was it from Quinn? Was it from the coaches? For, like, where did that come from? Because it was so egregious. And they gave it to him a little more this year. And he produced a little bit, even if the offensive numbers were poor because of the injury to Cat and everything else. And they Denver had time to figure that stuff out. So all this to say, I think you're closer to right. But I'm curious as to why you gave him so much credit, given some of the notable things that we saw as different last season. I mean, if he's your one big on the floor, you still have a top 10 defense. Like it's just, it's baked. Like maybe the, the decline will like, uh, you know, age related decline will catch up, but there's still every bit of evidence suggests that like you still have a, a very good two borderline elite defense just by having this guy on the floor still. And, you know, you can do a lot of, there's a lot that, that gives you uh, some uh, wiggle room in terms of who else you put on the floor with him to sort of make up some of that, the offensive shortcomings. And uh, you know, as you say, there are things he can do to be effective offensively. This is this is a weird thing that we like a guy who is a non-shooter kind of well, okay, but he's he he's a rim runner and he's an off- offensive rebounder. So you can figure out ways to it might not always be pretty, but it can be effective with that. It's not like he's he's someone who's standing at the arc and just doesn't get guarded or he's like in in the dunker spot and his guy is helping all the time. I mean that ended up happening some with with the wolves but that's like some of the weirdness of i mean you know they're running out lineups of like slow-mo and cat and 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 rudy with and and you know with the ball in in a not particularly dynamic ball handler's hands and in d'angelo russell's like oh yeah how's that supposed to work you know so but at the same time there were some signs of slippage you met you mentioned that the you know the difference between being like 99th percentile which he's basically been for the rest of his career and yeah. 92nd is that's a, that is a non that is a substantial difference. Um, I think if you were able, and these metrics aren't amenable to sort of partial season splits, but I think if you were to kind of take the sample kind of after they sort of figured out how to play with him, and that was, and that, that probably coincided. I don't think it's necessarily uh, causative, but I think it coincided a lot with, with towns being out yeah. for a while. The whole thing was they're going to have to figure out how to make the two big lineup work. And then they never got to figure it out. But it's like, oh, you only have one lineup on the floor. They didn't have camp. And then they didn't have a chance like through most of the season. Yeah. Like once, like once, you know, Cat was like Rudy sat out after, after Eurobasket, most of camp and Cat was sick. And then they started the season and they hadn't really gotten a chance. And it sucked. And then Cat gets hurt. And then they sort of figure it out towards the end of the season. 
And then they stayed, they stayed being team drama all year. So again, another guy who's definitely on notice, but I think that on balance, I think he probably had a better year than is sort of understood last year. I would agree. I would agree with that assessment. So I think I'm probably gonna move him up next time I do the rankings. That's Seth part now from the athletic. You can check him out over there and check out all the tiers. Uh, thanks sorry. for having me. And, and, you know, the, I guess the last thing I want to say, and this is, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take a word out of your mouth and, and be something that like, you know, you put these out there and you're, you're expecting to get some, some feedback. You're, you're expecting to get some, some negativity and that's fine. Disagree, whatever. I just wish people would actually engage with a, you know, depending on the criteria that you are tiering or ranking on, you're going to come up with a very different set. Like if we were doing like which player has the most trade value or should have the most trade value. So age contract included age contract reputation, league reputation included. That's a very different exercise than, than what we both did. So like, like, yeah, no, no shit. You wouldn't trade LaMelo for, for Austin Reeves, but that's a different thing. And second of all, like, uh, these aren't, I, I don't know how much time you spent on yours, but these are not slapped together. This no. is, you know, these take, no. it's, these are faster for me now because I, my, I, I, because I am sort of intentionally sticky in my ratings, I don't start with a blank sheet of paper anymore. I start with last year's. So it takes less time than it did when I, like the first time I did it, when I had a complete blank sheet of paper and everybody in the league had to filter in, but it still takes, I don't know. I don't even want to know. Think how much time like the projects took start to finish starting in, you know, starting in January, basically, because you're, you're looking at it, you know, constantly. So this is, if it's not, if it's not a hundred plus hours, it's close. So uh, say we're, say we're wrong and you disagree. Don't, don't, don't say it's lazy analysis. Like, yeah, this is something that, that we, you know, that we worry over and it's fine. I'm fine being wrong, but I'm like, yeah, I'm okay being, I'm totally okay being wrong. And I can admit, like, I'm going to be wrong. And I've already admitted I'm wrong on some of these, but I do think that there's a, there should be an assumption. Like I do care about him enough to put him out there. And so I did go through the process and like, I did it daily for a lot of time, some several weeks of um, looking at them and going, okay, where's this guy doing them daily to look at the entire list and, and evaluate them and be like, all right, that seems too low. I'm going to move them up. No, maybe I was wrong. Moving back down. It's fluid. Um, and especially in a lot of these large ranges as you get lower. So yeah, I think it's a good point that um, a lot of, a lot of time. Goes mean, into it, it. There, there is a, there is a, a quick rip, a clickbait way to do this, but I, mm-hmm. but I, but you know, I won't, I'll say that just based on the amount of, I mean, the fact that you bothered to do a, 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 a spread rating and a differential between, you know, how they would grade out in the regular season versus the playoffs, like that in and of itself shows that this isn't a quick rip. So don't call us lazy. That's <laughs> don't call us lazy. Listening, if you're listening, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not the people who are calling Matt lazy. Probably not. Damn it. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate you guys uh, being along with us. Uh, thanks to Seth for being my guest this week. We'll be back later in the week as we're going to start our how-to series with how to bet an in-season tournament. Excited to get into that. Hope you guys have a great week. We'll see you guys again next time. Till then, let's get buckets. Action Network reminds you, please gamble responsibly. If you or someone you care about has a gambling problem, help is available 24-7 at 1-800-GAMBLER.